Hi, my name's Mike Schleifer, and I'm the managing director for the Alliance Theater. Uh, you might not have heard my voice before, and that's because I don't spend my time on the stage. I spend my time behind the scenes helping to support the artists and the creatives that make the work that you see. And I'm super excited to share in this conversation with Rick Ellis and Jessica Stone about how we at the Alliance bring new work to Atlanta that we then export across the nation. Do I have kale in my teeth? Mm-hmm. I do. <laughs> no, you don't. You're fine. I would tell you if you did. That's, you know, that's, I want to start with that story. All right, just as a warm up. That I had kale in my I teeth? I may have told you this story, but I don't think I have. Many, many years ago, many, many, I'm, I should talk to you. Feel like- many, many, <laughs> many, many years ago, 1984, uh-huh. yeah. there was a Broadway musical called The Rink. I know. And, you know, a lot of our friends were in the cast playing right. on roller skates right. and uh, when they had hair. And uh, and it was starring Cheetah Rivera and Liza Minnelli. Right. And um, uh, and it was written by uh, Terrence McNally right. and Kendra Nepp. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, the show, it, Liza was sort of in, a, in the doldrums at the time. You know, she had been 10 years before the biggest star in the world, movie star, stage star. Every time she did something, she won all these awards. But 1984, she'd had a couple of failed marriages and she was a little depressed and, you know, and she was a little bit sort of, you know, she came to do this show hoping that it was going to pull her out of this thing. But yeah. she's suddenly playing second banana. Yeah. And she's been the biggest star in the world. And Cheetah Rivera, her longtime pal, is the star of the show. And, um, and it's not doing very well after it opens. And I'm doing the advertising. And uh, we had a big television commercial, but the producers didn't have the money to put the television commercial on the air. What they did have was enough money for radio. So every Wednesday, I would go to the Martin Beck Theater, now the Hirschfeld Theater, with a script, a couple of lavalier mics, and a tape recorder, a simpty tape recorder. Uh, and uh, I would go to Cheetah's dressing room as a courtesy because she was the star. And Liza would come up after the matinee. And I would hand them both the script. And it was sort of like girl talk radio. It wasn't about the show. It was like, did you see that lady in the third row? God, it wasn't, she, it wasn't her hair funny. <clears throat> that sort of stuff. Nichols and May kind of radio, right. but for Rivera and Minnelli. And one Wednesday, I did this every Wednesday for nine months. One Wednesday about, you know, six months in, it was really, the show was really, they were really sick and tired of me and doing the radio spots and doing the show. And Liza came up and she had this big chunk of spinach in her teeth. Mm-hmm. And uh, we did the spots and I went back to the office and and Nancy Coyne, who uh, you know was the owner of the uh, ad agency, said, is, "Is everything all right? You seem, you know, you seem a little depressed." And I said, "Well, Liza Minnelli came up, and she had this big piece of spinach in her teeth, and it broke my heart because, to me, if you have a big piece of spinach in your teeth, and nobody tells you, you have no right. friends. How right. could Liza Minnelli have no friends?" So she said, "Well, why didn't you tell her?" I said, "It's not my place to say. Right. Excuse me, Liza, you have spinach in your teeth. She'd be embarrassed. You'd have to have somebody in your life who says." honey, you got spinach in your teeth. Right. And it, it made me very, very sad. So that's why I'm saying to you, I will always tell you if you have spinach in your teeth and Thank you, you don't. And that's what made me want to do Water for Elephants. <laughs> <laughs> I love the way you brought it back to Water for Elephants. That's so sweet. That's so sweet. She's so she's so on on. On it. On, on point. On point. task. I knew there was you a were word there. You were looking for the word. I knew there was a P word. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't remember what it was. So but many it was other a T 
word. <laughs> I knew it was a T word. This is what it's like to our collaboration. She right. says it's a P word. And then I tried guessing P words. And she said, I didn't say P word. I said T word. Right. And now we have a show. And now we have a show. Anyway, uh, let me introduce myself. I'm Jessica Stone, and this is Rick Ellis, <laughs> and and we are we are the director and writer of Water for Elephants, the hit new musical at the Alliance Coca-Cola Theater. <clears throat> okay. Your artistic origin story, please. My artistic well, origin you, story. Well, you. I mean, we all know you as an actor. We've seen you in a million things, and here you are directing this. You know, this sort of battleship of a of a of a production. Right. How did you end up here? Oh, Rick. Um, well, I <laughs> no, tell us. I, you know, everybody saw you on television on Sunday night. Uh, Kimberly Fall. Akimbo, the big winner of the 2023 Tony Awards, directed by Jessica Stone. And, you know, here she is slumming with us here in uh, in Atlanta. Um, but but what uh, what made you say yes? When to you... Water for Elephants? Yeah. Well, I think it was our producers and it was Pigpen and it was you, our, you know, our beautiful book writer and our um, composers. And, and it was the challenge. It, you know, I actually didn't think I was going to be given the job. So when um, Peter Schneider and Jennifer Costello, our producers said, well, why don't you come in and what would you do with this story? And I had to really think about it. And I, I because I, I, I had never done anything like this before. And what's funny is I started it by saying I'm sort of allergic to the kind of shows, the kinds of shows that are like, and then this fork is turned into a tiara. And we, like, I'm, that's not my thing. And turns out <laughs> it is my thing. Um, but, uh, but we, I, I was sort of intrigued by the, by the challenge. It's like, how would you do a train? How would you do a stampede? How would you do the elephant? Like, what are the things about the story that speak most to you? And so I just thought, well, this is a good exercise for me to think this way and to pitch it. But I actually never thought I would get the job. And then they gave it to me. I know. And, and, and I rue the day how that many, I... How many years ago would you say that is? I mean, it was... It's a while like, ago. Like the Harding, you know, years. <laughs> not, not even counting COVID. No, not even deducting... It was definitely, it was 2018. COVID. It was the summer of 2018 wow. that um, Jen and Peter called me about it, and I read the book, and I read the first draft. And uh, oh, and you came to my apartment. I remember we had. And then a, I came to your and apartment. We had a long talk. I met with Pigpen. Oh, oh no! I these people put me through eight meetings. It was a lot. It was, was a it lot. Eight? Was it really eight? Yes. And oh, wow. uh, and I put a whole pitch together with images and ideas. And again, it was, it felt like grad school. I never actually thought I was going to be given the job. Um, and I was offered Kimberly at the same time. So that for me has been really weird is the last, you know, four and a half, five years have been these two projects, you know, side by side simultaneously. And they're very, very different tonally. They're very, it's a very different skill set, even though they're both new shows, which is an entirely different skill set for directing than a revival. But, um, they're very different, um, beasts, and uh, so that's been really interesting. It's been like a like a director's workout the last five years. What was the what has been the the um, the best part of the of the process for you? And what is the what has been the most frustrating part? Well, the best part has actually it's I wouldn't say the most frustrating, but the best part and the most challenging part um, is how 
big and not disparate, but um, how uh, there's so much show that there are many, many departments. And so it's been years of um, finding a common language with a set, our set designer, our costume designer, puppet designers, um, our choreographer, our circus choreographer, our writers, our composers, our projections. Like there's so many different departments and, and you know, we even still will have meetings as we're all making sure we're telling the same story and that we all have the same goals in mind. And 98% of the time we do, you know, which is really amazing. Yeah. But we it, just had one of those last night. We did. And what's funny is there are there are days where I'm like, oh, yeah, because you guys weren't in that conversation with the set designer. That was me with the set designer for five years, but you weren't necessarily in that conversation. Or we were in many, I mean, hours and hours of of writing workshops, mm -hmm. right? You and Pigpen and I just like trying to figure out, trying to map every single character and what the tone is and what the vocabulary is. And then me taking that information and and trying to funnel that and translate that and communicate with our circus choreographer or our other choreographer, our co-choreographer, Jesse Robb. So that's been the most amazing is all that collaboration and the most difficult because it is like herding jello, you know, <laughs> to get everybody in the same um in the same world with the same goals. But I think my favorite rooms, and then I'm gonna turn it around to you, my favorite rooms of collaboration, and I've loved all of it with all the different um, people have been the writing rooms because that- Oh, you're just saying that. I'm not, they're the ones where I laugh the most and cry the most. And <laughs> um, I just think you and Pigpen and I, have a really good time and you know we lock horns in the best way and um those are those are my favorite memories over the last five years is our like weeks in a room together or on zoom together or and just getting our hands dirty and like coming up with an idea and then be like get rid of that let's do <laughs> let's do something new we're in that moment right now there which we won't give anything away but there's a scene in particular right now in Act One that is not quite what we all want, but we know it serves, you know, many different points for the story, but it's not, and we're just trying to figure out how sort to do it. Sort of interesting today, though. Did you feel like we sort of yes. improved the situation Didn't today? You? Well, you know, I'm glad because my fear in a situation like this, when you're deep into rehearsals and deep into previews and you're about to open the show and you think, People any, panic. Any change that you make now had better be an improvement because if it's not, then everybody loses faith in you. you know, I know. And you, they start giving you the side eye backstage and, you know, why are you wasting our time? I and, know. But and, that's why it was so important yeah. that we, the changes we made were like, let's trim a little, let's polish a little, let's, you know, so we can really. No, I was very heartened today. I, t I actually, I, I sort of, I sort of burst into tears today. <laughs> I went over to her and I said, oh my God, you're so good with the actors. It's so wonderful to see you with the actors. She's a really good director. And she's been doing this sort of field marshal part of directing, you know, which is you do that and you do that and this is the order and this is the work list for tomorrow and and that sort of steering a battleship through a keyhole and today i got to watch a great actor who's now directing talk to actors and titivate 
and get them to be better. And I, I, uh, it was sort of overcome emotionally. Well, it's that's been a tricky part with this process because it's so big. And so, and and there's never enough time on this because the circus elements alone take a really long time. And then the puppetry takes a really long time. And everybody's a little bit outside of their skill set. So we didn't have a traditional process where you can take a couple of days around a table and really talk to the actors. Even our, <laughs> the, the scenes, <laughs> that's the easy part with this particular show. So it was like, you know, they would do it three times and I would give notes like on the fly and we would have to move on because people had to fly through the air and be elephants. Yeah. So, um, so it was funny that at the tail end of the process, almost before we open, it was like, oh, let's rehearse a scene like you it was beautiful. It was sort of like sacred today, mm -hmm. and I loved it. I loved every second of it. What are some of your – what was the thing that made you want to do this, and what are some of your favorite experiences besides being on Zoom with yours truly over the last we did. five years? Well, we did – we got to do a lot of COVID Zooming, which helped mm -hmm. me get through Zooming. I mean, through COVID. <laughs> See how I did that? Um, what made me want to do it? Well, I have to say, for me personally – um, it was the advance, one billion dollars. <laughs> it's hard to yes. just hard to we say. We are no. wildly they've important, been, been wealthy throwing, people. Throwing, throwing money at us, so <laughs> it's very hard. You know, we have families to support. You know, and you, sometimes you have to make those choices. I um, I was just sort of minding my own business seven years ago when Peter Schneider called me. Peter Schneider is somebody who used to be my client uh, when I was in advertising, and he was. Um, uh, running the uh, feature animation division at uh, Walt Disney Studios and became the producer of The Lion King on Broadway. And um, that's how I met him. Uh, I was a vendor and he was my client. Um, so imagine my surprise when, um, uh, oh, you know, 15 years after that, um, he called and said, would you be interested in adapting this novel? Now, maybe he asked because I had adapted a novel for as a play called Peter and the Star Catchers was the name of the novel and Peter and the Star Catcher was the name of the play because we, it was a very low budget production. <laughs> so we lopped off that S. And, um, uh, but it was an adaptation of a novel, a sort of a rangy, picaresque, 500 page novel. And um, here he was with a novel in his hand, Water for Elephants, which I had read as part of a book club, uh, uh, you know, in around 2006 or something like that. And, um, he said, would you be interested in adapting it? And I said, if I can do it with Pigpen. Re literally, that was the next thing that came out of my mouth because the year before, I had spent some time, a few months, working on another novel, The Alchemist by Paolo Coelho, um, coming up with a, a plan, a treatment of how that might work as a show. And, um, and then it turned out that uh, he, uh, I think, wanted to do it himself. And so... Um, the advantage for me was um, that I'd spent a few months with the Pigpen guys, and I felt real simpatico with them, and they're also, you know, half my age, and so I felt like they were kind of like my lost boys. And, uh, and then working with them, I began to realize that I was also a lost boy, and we needed a Wendy. Hmm? And enter, uh, enter Jessica Stone to the picture. I, um, I remember uh, a writer named Peter Stone who said to me no relation to you my but, dad's uh, name is Peter Stone is though. that so mm -hmm. oh golly well maybe it was your dad then he said to me remember um 
writing for the theater is sort of talking things into existence. So it's better if you're talking to other people than if you're just talking to yourself, which is what I mostly do. And um, the chance to do that with seven guys to begin with, we spent a couple of years, the eight of us together before Jess, before you um, came to us. And um, uh, I, I really like that part of the process. You know, I like the talking it into existence and then this part, which is when you're in the theater and the actors are there and the designers are there and the lights are there and the costumes are there and you get to actually see something happening that's never happened before in the whole world ever. And, and um, to me, that's the compensation. And you know, not just the billion dollars, but the, the compensation of the experience of being part of a family. And of course, that's also what our show is about, right? Mm -hmm. This old guy who um, who comes at the, at the end of his life and says, I want to be part of a family again. And so for me, an old guy, you know, sort of at the end of his life saying, I want to be part of a family again, has, you know, stumbled into this process with you. And, um, uh, and it's been, uh, it's been very meaningful, because it feels very personal to me at this mm -hmm. point. Do you ever miss the days of because you started out as an actor. Um, do you ever miss the days of either acting or even in advertising? Do you miss any of your old hats that you wore? Um, the performing part, you know, I when I stopped, I was very lucky. I, I, I got my um, master's degree from Yale Drama School, now the David Geffen School of Drama. And, um, and when you get your master's degree, you also get your equity card. And the day that we graduated, I got, I booked two Broadway shows. The one that I took was a principal role in a new show, and I ended up getting fired from it after the first preview. And then they systematically started firing people. I was the bottom of the ladder, and they started firing people all the way up through opening, and then the thing went away. And it, it's, that was very traumatic. Uh, and um, so I, I, I had... Um, uh, desperately to earn a living. Uh, so I went and joined uh, American Repertory Theater for a, a while, and then I, I was on a soap for six months, and I, and I did like a, a Shakespeare on uh, great performances on, on uh, PBS. I thought, well, um, uh, I've done, like I've ticked off those acting boxes, realizing, of course, that, you know, especially if you go through Yale Drama School, where Meryl Streep went, you know, you're constantly trying to measure up to Meryl Streep or Robert De Niro, another graduate of Yale Drama School. And, you know, comes the day when you realize, I'm never going to be Meryl Streep. Mm. So what's the point mm -hmm. of continuing? You know, if you want to be great and you know that you're not, what's the point of continuing? Mm -hmm. And so I stopped because at just about the time when I was thinking, I'm never going to be great, I also uh, met and fell in love with somebody who lived 3,000 miles away. And at, at exactly that moment, I was offered a job as a copywriter at an advertising agency because at a party, an opening night party for a show, standing on line for the food, uh, I was standing on line in, behind the guy who ran the ad agency for the public theater and I was cracking wise and he said, oh, you're funny. Do you think you could write some funny headlines for me? And I said, I don't write headlines, I'm an actor. The next thing, you know, when he said, I'll pay you, <laughs> I said, of course I can write funny headlines. I'm, I was there the next day. And three weeks later, I was offered a full-time job. I thought, well, if I take this full-time job, I can afford to fly to England a lot, 
Um, and so I bid my acting career goodbye. Many, many years later, I was having dinner with, not to drop a name, Tom, the great Sir Tom Stoppard, who also on Sunday night, when Jessica had her big night, uh, got to win his fifth Tony Award. He's now like the most Tonied playwright in history. And he's, he's this, you know, he's brilliant, a, you know, a genius. You know, you never miss a chance to have dinner with a genius. And I had dinner with him when he, in 1995, when he was doing Arcadia, which is a great play of his. And um, we got to the restaurant and he said, didn't you like the play? And I said, oh my God, Tom, I loved the play. He said, well, you seem so depressed. And I said, well, because I'll never ever mm. write anything, one sentence that's as good as anything that you've, you'll ever do. And he said, well, don't you think that there are writers that I feel that way about? And I said, like who, Tolstoy? And he said, well, yes, for one. And, I, and he said, who cares whether it's great mm. or good? If it gives you pleasure to do it, then do it. And because then I was 40 and not 20 when I gave up acting, I thought, oh, well, maybe I could just sort of, maybe it's okay that I'm not great. I'll just do it. And it'll, if it gives me pleasure, then it'll be worth it. Mm -hmm. So that's how I became a writer. To that extent, I don't miss acting because I knew that um, there were always going to be better people. And I don't miss advertising because it, it was 20 years of my life and I built a company and it was, you know, I encountered some success and a reputation. But really what was great about it was that my profession became something that I would have been doing anyway, which was having ideas. Mm. And that's what I love about what I do now. I know I'm not the greatest writer in the world, but I have really, really good ideas. And I, and I love the puzzle solving the problem part of it. Yeah. I love that. And, um, and, uh, and, and as long as people are willing to give me a chance to bring that skill to the table, I'm just gonna keep doing it because it's a way to keep working in the theater, which yeah. I love so much. Yeah. Pause. I like that. I'm, well, it's nice because I've known you for so, I mean, not so long. There, We both have friends in our lives that we've known for decades. But now, for a long time, for the two of us, you know. And it's nice to hear new stories. A couple of them are in the show. Like Paul Castry is in the show, somebody yeah. that you've known for. I've known him for 32 years. And you were actors together. We were actors together in a national tour of Bye Bye Birdie. He was Harvey Johnson. I was Ursula. And we roomed together for a year and a half on the road. And he's my best friend. And you've and cast I him in the him. show. I put it, it's the first time I've had the opportunity to. It's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was 20 minutes. 25 minutes. <laughs> and we didn't talk about any of your questions. We did one. We talked a little bit about the process. You did hear about Liza Minnelli's spinach. <laughs> That's worth millions. No one in and Atlanta knows that story. I, you know, it's funny. Everybody, all of our collaborators, at least in terms of the designers, are, um, they're all incredibly experienced in their own way. But for instance, Shana Carroll hasn't really worked on like a traditional musical. Um, and so there is a little bit of a learning curve in terms of what circus performers need to train, to stay warm, to learn music, you know, to learn how to sing, to learn how to say lines. Um, you know, that was a little bit of a learning curve as, as it was for all of us to suddenly have this very different discipline and um, rehearsal process um, 
work sort of within and alongside our existing process. But it's been interesting, hasn't it, to see an acting company that's very, very experienced and very rangy, but you know, acting companies sort of know, especially because you've been experienced, you know what you know what it is, you know what's gonna happen on the first day, you know what's gonna happen on the fourth week, you know what's gonna happen when you get into the theater. But because they have merged with the circus performers, the circus performers the novelty for them of being part of a company that's telling a story has kind of infected in the best possible way the um, the spirit of yeah. the uh, of the acting company and I mean um, inspired them really like inspiration you know breathed life into them so that yeah. there's like no cynicism it's such yeah. an optimistic group. It's think, also hilarious. Circus performers are funny because whenever there's a break or if they're not doing something, you could, you could just be working on like a new line and Rick and I will be, you know, obsessing over a, a new word that some character is using and I'll look up and I'll just see somebody spinning upside down. <laughs> and they're just like, it's like they're, they're toddlers who do extraordinary feats of risk. Risking their lives. Insanity, <laughs> but they just do it while they're hanging out. And, and it is, it is, um, spread to the rest of the company. So, you know, at one point we were working on this number at the top of act two and Ryan Vasquez, who plays our lead, who has no business doing anything circus related, um, was, you know, he kept, he wanted to master juggling pins and he kept dropping them. And I finally was like, Ryan, you have to not, he was like, I won't, I won't. I was like, good. Cause I need the focus on Walter here. He was like, I know I'll stop. And then in a performance, he dropped them again exactly when I wanted to focus on Walter. And the note that I gave him was, you've lost your juggling privileges. <laughs> Cut the prop. You are not allowed to juggle anymore. Meanwhile, he probably has never been on trapeze before either. And he sings the 11 o'clock number swinging on a trapeze, yeah. per literally performing without a net. Yeah. Everybody's doing skills that they don't typically do, yeah. which is really cool. You know, I try to find, and in anything that I'm working on, I try to find a way to connect so that um, it feels authentic. I don't care so much about actual authenticity. I want things to feel authentic. And um, this, um, because this story really is about, a, um, I was saying last night uh, in this very room actually, um, that uh, we think of coming of age stories as always relating to an 18 year old person who uh, is on the brink of a new adventure and at the at the end of the evening, they've become, they've entered into adulthood, or at least they're looking over the sort of the promised land of adulthood as if they're sort of an adolescent Moses, you know, wondering if they're going to get in or not. That's what most coming of age stories are. This um, story is, of course, that, but um, because it is a memory play, and the memory belongs to somebody who's older, who's lost, who's experienced loss. Um, his uh, he uh, his. He, he's had a family, his kids are old and they're doing what kids do when they have their own lives. Um, his, his partner, his wife has passed away. He's in a uh, nursing home and he just feels like it's all over for him. And there's, what's the point of, of waking up tomorrow? And he rejoins the human race, um, as Thornton Wilder says in, uh, in The Matchmaker. And, but his way of doing it is by going back for the first time to this place where he where he was uh, experiencing life for the first time. And, um, and he's welcomed into this uh, family again, and he belongs to something again. He becomes part of something bigger than himself. And God, that's what I want for, for me, 
and you know er every time every time I enter into a project like this, and it feels very very profound with Water for Elephants. Well, I can't add to that. I think that's a beautiful. I think that's a beautiful answer. We have this number, very very early number that we worked on. You know, in the very very first get together, we came, we left with three songs. There's all three of them are in the show now. Easy, uh, I choose the ride, and anywhere. Those are the. They're not the first three numbers in the show, but they are right at the in the first half hour of the show, and. Um, I choose the ride is our metaphor, the ride being the ride on the train that crisscrosses the country as they go from town to town with their circus. But it is written as um, sort of a prayer. It feels like a prayer and it's got those harmonics and and um, uh, it sounds like you're, you could be in church listening to this. And, um, and, and there's a beautiful harmony at the on the very last note that just sort of fades away and it's I, it feels like you know I, I always imagine that the, the lights get a little bit brighter and it's not a cue it's just sort of the universe saying yes that's what it's all about you choose your the family that you um, that you feel this profound connection with mm -hmm. I love that about our show Wow what an amazing conversation with Rick Ellis and Jessica Stone. And our big thanks to them and a reminder to you that you can catch Water for Elephants until July 9th. And thank you for listening. And we hope you'll join us for next season's podcast coming in August.